This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Tennis Balls. Do you want a multi-purpose item that dogs often put in their mouths? Try Tennis Balls today. Welcome to episode 99 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we are talking about avocados, or as people who still can't let go of vine yet call them, free shavakadu. It's no secret that America is obsessed with avocados. The versatile fruit can be found on sushi, burritos, sandwiches, smoothies, and every single t-shirt at Forever 21. And much like crop tops and low-rise jeans, avocado consumption in the United States has climbed steadily since the early 2000s. Over the past 20 years, the consumption of avocados has tripled to more than 8 pounds per person per year. That's right, you can shoulder fly your annual avocado consumption and actually get a decent workout in. In fact, avocados are so popular that they even got a Super Bowl commercial this year. I'm sorry, what are you doing? Adding avocados from Mexico. They're always good. Want some? Let's kick this party up a notch. Here we go. You know, they also taste great on salads. Yeah, Caesar, we get it. I love salads. If that's what I'm known for, I'll be happy. Avocados from Mexico. Okay, a few things there. One, I know you can't see it because it's a podcast, but this ad looks like it took place on what must have been the set of a middle school production of Titus Andronicus. Two, how is this commercial both in ancient Rome with Julius Caesar and at a tailgate? According to a Vice report on the history of tailgating, the first tailgate ever took place in 1869. Nice. So this commercial is completely anachronistic. And three, why are you talking about salad in a Super Bowl ad? Do you know what people eat at Super Bowl parties? Yeah, everything except salad. Seriously, if you put the avocados on a bunch of mini cupcakes, you'd have a more compelling ad than salad. I'm not a big avocado person myself, to be honest with you, but if they're going to leave me off at salad, I'm certainly not getting off the couch to go to the grocery store. The fact that avocados got a Super Bowl ad, though, shows not only how popular they are, but how profitable they are. Super Bowl ads cost a fortune, let alone a full minute ad like this one, so you can see just from that that the avocado industry is enjoying really high demand and raking in quite a bit of cash as a result. But as demand for avocados has grown, so have the issues associated with avocado production. 90% of the avocados found in supermarkets across the country are imported, the majority from Mexico. And the concentration of avocado production in this one region presents several issues, from deforestation to climate vulnerability to the expansion of many illegal cartel operations. Today, we'll discuss what challenges avocados present, how climate change may exacerbate some of them, and what the future looks like for free shavakadu. 
The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Paraland Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash Promise. If you want to take two minutes to help out the Sweaty Penguin, you can either leave us a five-star rating and review, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Doing either earns you a special shout-out at the end of the show, joining the the Patreon gets you merch, bonus content, and a whole lot more. But first, as always, it's time for Avocados 101. The avocado is native to Central America and can only be grown in subtropical and tropical regions. It's not actually a vegetable, or a stone fruit if you were thinking that, the avocado is botanically a berry. Just because it's big, green, and ugly doesn't mean it shouldn't get the same respect as a raz or a straw. If you think about it, it's the only berry with a unique name. They could have called it the lumpy green berry, but they knew it was destined for more. Avocados have a high fat content, but they contain monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats, which are known to lower cholesterol, making them super heart healthy and a great alternative to milkshakes. The natural oils in avocados also make them a versatile ingredient in hair and skincare products, such as shampoos, soap bars, facial moisturizers, and lip balms. Avocado oil has even been used to fuel a bus in Mexico. Now that's what I'd call a superfood, or should I say, super crude. The word avocado comes from the word ahuacatl, which is the Nahuatl word for testicle. It was supposed to be a nod to the avocado's property of growing in pears, but imagine the first guy to pick an avocado and announce to everyone what they were having for dinner? That must have been a fun talk with mom after everyone left. 16th century Spanish conquistadors later named it aguacate, and English colonists dumbed it down as they do, nicknaming it the alligator pear. It seems no one could settle on an attractive name for this bizarre fruit, but alligator pear is at least extremely accurate. If fruits were celebrities, avocados would be the Kanye West of the botanical world. Controversial, expensive, and something the media just can't get enough of. Like the time they trended on Twitter with the hashtag avocado proposal, where you guessed it, millennials used avocados to propose to their special someone by, you guessed it again, putting the ring inside an avocado. because diamonds are a girl's best friend, but especially when they're covered in green slime. Seriously, there's a reason it's not every kiss begins with polyunsaturated fat. But unfortunately, avocados face more issues than ruining engagement rings. And let's start with water use. Here's Tyler McNevin of Bon Appetit expressing just how surprising avocados' water consumption is. Ah, well, looky, looky. Avocado. How did you get here? The avocado 
also known as the alligator pear. It takes 37 gallons of water to grow each one. That's equivalent to a 17 minute shower. Whoa, so something interesting to think about next time you take a bite of this delicious alligator pear greenness. That's right. Each avocado needs the equivalent of a 17 minute shower. I wonder what shower thoughts avocados have. God, I have so many bruises. How did I even get these? Everyone is making avocado toast, but nobody is doing an avocado roast. What do you call a male avocado? An avocadier? What do you call a Swedish avocado pop group? Avocado? What do you call an avocado on a roller coaster? King Dakado? What is our meaning on this earth? How do we find our place among the stars? Is there a point to anything, really? Tyler seems really surprised by this number, though, and I think that reaction is interesting. If we're just acting surprised over the big number of 37 gallons, that's maybe not worthwhile. A lot of crops use a lot of water. That's just part of agriculture. It's like acting surprised that your new girlfriend likes Target. Like, yeah, you didn't see that coming? Where I do think this case gets surprising, though, is that typically, fruits and vegetables are the least water-intensive crops, but not in the case of avocados. That's because avocado trees have shallow root systems, and their roots lie in just the top six to eight inches of soil. Since these shallow roots can't search for water deeper in the soil, they can very easily dry out. I mean, that's what happens when you only give the tip. So it's reasonable for Tyler to be surprised that avocados are a lot more water-intensive than other fruits and vegetables. But we have to dig a little deeper than just the 37 gallons number to see what's going on. The other important piece, though, is that this demand for water in tropical, subtropical, and Mediterranean climates means that trees cannot usually be grown at a commercial scale without irrigation. According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, irrigated agriculture is the largest user of water in the world, accounting for 70% of water used globally. And with avocado-producing regions experiencing worsening droughts due to climate change, the use of irrigation can quickly deplete surface and groundwater reserves. This practice can result in the reduction of water in streams and lakes, the drying up of wells, lowering of the water table, increased water pumping costs, and the overall deterioration of water quality. In Chile's Central Valley, which accounts for about 8% of global avocado production, this water demand has actually exacerbated conflict as well. In Chile, water rights can be transferred from the state to private entities without restriction. 
A water code written in the country's 1980 constitution supported auctioning off of rivers, giving private companies and individuals the opportunity to dictate where water is used. That's right. Rivers are actually auctioned off, as in... All right, we got the Mississippi River, $3,000, hey, about a hey, about a $3,000, we got $3,000, $4,000, hey, about a swing, about about a $4,000, $4,000, the guy in the back, do we see a man in the back, $4,000, $5,000, going once, going twice, sold to the little boy in the raft. Unsurprisingly, commercial avocado plantations then moved into the region, but since 2010, the river in the Petorca Basin has essentially dried up. This is due to drought, overconsumption by agriculture, and even climate change. Typically, the river would receive a steady flow of water throughout the year from the melt of nearby snow-capped mountains, but with climate change, the region is not seeing as much snow. And while you'd think any water distribution system would prioritize humans drinking water over avocados drinking water, local residents did not take priority here, ultimately having to get their drinking water delivered from tanker trucks. And because avocados use so much more water and resources than their counterparts, they're also a lot more expensive. In fact, some in the industry refer to them as green gold. And shockingly, that wasn't a marketing ploy for leprechauns. Shoppers can expect to pay anywhere from a dollar to two fifty for a single avocado, which may I remind you, must be eaten within hours of purchasing. Honestly, it's like nothing's built to last anymore. That brings us to Michoacan, Mexico. Due to its Mediterranean climate, rich volcanic soil, and natural irrigation, Michoacan makes up 30% of global avocado production. In 2020, Mexico reported avocado exports of $3.2 billion, with the vast majority of those sales going to the United States. Unfortunately, the U.S. and Mexico have had a rocky history of being avocado business partners. Mexican avocados actually used to be banned in the United States, up until the lifting of a trade ban with Mexico in 1994. But in order to lift this ban, the U.S. required some major concessions from Mexico, chief among them being that Mexico reduce taxes. And I know that's a much broader conversation than we're going to have today, but in the context of this podcast episode, that demand to reduce taxes led the Mexican government to not have the revenue to invest in local institutions, and then organized crime came in. Criminals were able to strong-arm local police forces, bribe politicians, and essentially take over entire towns. But when the U.S. and Mexico began cracking down on the drug trade, cartels realized they needed to find new sources of income. According to Rice University's Dr. Tony Payan, these criminals knew the immense value of this avocado industry, which makes it no surprise that avocados became their target. I think that people in the United States do not understand that Mexico is in the grips 
of a much broader mafia-style organized crime. The avocado industry is a multi-billion dollar industry, and they uh, are in a state that is racked by organized criminals that know the value of this crop. Dr. Payan says organized criminals knew the value of avocados and that the consequences of that are something we in the U.S. haven't been able to get our heads around. These criminals are so powerful that they can essentially extort farmers and packing plants for money and threaten violence if they don't get their way. And even though avocados were expensive already, some of these actions by the illegal cartels end up limiting avocado production, leading to less avocados on the market, which means prices get even higher. So even though we may be blissfully ignorant in the US, as Dr. Payan says, we do end up paying some of this cost at the supermarket. The real cost, though, is borne out by the farmers who receive these threats and have to either pay the criminals to leave them alone or face the consequences. And you might be wondering from the farmer's perspective, why even bother being in this industry? Why go through this? And the reality is, even with cartels taking a cut, avocados have provided revenues for farmers that no other crop has been able to match. A farmer with only a few acres of avocado trees can send their children to college or buy a new pickup truck to get avocados to the market without middlemen. And that economic opportunity has led to another issue, illegal logging. In an effort to grow more avocados and make more money, some residents resort to deforesting their land. Hector Saavedra, who goes by Tata, is a member of a local vigilante group in this region of Mexico who works to defend against illegal activities, such as cartel crime and illegal logging. Here's a clip from Vice News, where Tata asks a local if he knocked down some freshly cut pine trees. Tata and his men frequently patrol the region to make sure local residents, like this one, aren't deforesting their property. Avocado trees require considerably more water and direct sunlight. Residents will cut down pine trees and even set fire to their own land to grow more of the fruit. According to Tata, avocado trees get aggravated when pine trees block out sunlight. And trust me, you don't want to see an aggravated avocado tree. They are capable of mad vengeance, and their lack of production and overall threatening demeanor forces farmers to cut down the pines so the avocado trees can produce more fruit. But because of Tata's point, avocado growers have an extra incentive to cut down trees than perhaps some other crops. We've talked about a lot of other crops on the podcast before that actually benefit from having other trees around them providing shade, but avocados certainly don't fall in that bucket. They need all the sunlight they can get, which means growers will want to cut down pines, and the need for Tata's vigilante work is really apparent. You might even call it clear cut. According to a 2021 survey published in the journal Conservation on avocado cover expansion, 
The expansion of avocado orchards has already led to the loss of over 33% of the oak pine forest in Michoacan between 1990 and 2006, an area that's equivalent to nearly 432 New York City Central Parks. And replacing these coniferous forests with avocado orchards presents some major issues. Land use change alters hydrology and soil chemistry, reduces biodiversity, and if you remember way back to episode 23 of The Sweaty Penguin, we talked about the importance of old-growth forests. Older forests have stored away large quantities of carbon dioxide, and if cut down, they can release that carbon back into the atmosphere, contributing to climate change. And you might be thinking, won't the avocado trees store carbon too? But unfortunately, according to Global Forest Watch, avocado trees store four times less carbon dioxide per hectare than the native fir and pine trees. The more we talk about it, the snootier I think avocados are. They get everything handed to them, they're in such high demand that everyone bends over backwards to sustain them, give them water, don't block out sunlight. I mean, it doesn't get any more high maintenance than that. You've heard of the giving tree, but I think this is the taking tree. And in Michoacan specifically, you might remember a few weeks ago when we discussed monarch butterflies. If you haven't heard that episode yet, the Michoacan Mountains Oak Pine Forests are home to the Monarch Butterflies hibernation sites, and the expansion of avocado orchards over the last 25 years has reached the region surrounding the Monarch Butterfly Biosphere Reserve, a UNESCO World Heritage Site where millions of monarchs complete their southerly migration. The property protects an estimated 70% of the total overwintering colonies of the eastern monarch population. But as recently as 2018, Mexican officials reported that they found three hectares of illegal avocado orchards in the reserve. And since monarchs roost in those native coniferous trees, a declining habitat could mean the monarchs complete their nearly 3,000-mile journey and find themselves with nowhere to sleep. It's not like they can get an Airbnb. Get it? Like, B? So where do we go from here? Do we need to ban avocados and only put Vegemite on our toast? Of course not. That would be torture. There are certainly ways to address many of these issues, and actually, there's been quite a bit of movement in the year 2022. First off, monarch butterflies were officially declared an endangered species this summer. That means they can receive more protections. But also, back in February, the U.S. Department of Agriculture announced a temporary suspension on avocado imports from Mexico due to the organized crime that permeates Mexico's avocado industry. Ironically, the ban came on the same day that the Mexican Avocado Growers and Packers Association revealed that Super Bowl ad for the year. So I guess that makes it two postseason losses for the Packers. At least the avocado packers aren't resorting to growing out their hair, taking cringe tank top photos, and acting like they had a shot at being the host of Jeopardy. What ultimately got the attention of the United States, though, wasn't the long-time issues we just discussed. 
It was a threatening call to U.S. safety inspectors that ultimately put an international spotlight on the industry. And it's worth noting that trade sanctions are really, really tricky. They hurt Mexican farmers trying to sell their avocados, and they hurt American buyers who now have to pay more since there's fewer avocados in the market. The goal would be to put pressure on Mexico to say this hurts your economy and will continue to if you don't resolve the issue. But it's up to Mexico how high of a priority this is. It's no guarantee, especially for an issue as challenging as this one. So while it's good to see the United States recognizing the issue, a flat-out ban can sometimes bring a lot of downsides for everyone. I guess we'll see how this plays out. How about on the environmental side? Well, for one, focusing on water conservation can address water shortages where avocados are grown. Drip irrigation is one option, which can give trees the exact amount of water needed and as a result, reduce overall water consumption by 30 to 40%. Another option is high-density planting. Here's Dr. Gary Bender explaining a high-density planting trial that he conducted with the goal of producing the highest avocado yield per acre possible. So this is a high-density. We're trying out uh, on 10 by 10 spacing. We're trying to keep them about 8 feet high. And uh, Hass does not want to grow like that. So it's a constant uh, pruning and touch-up pruning to keep these trees in their shape. We'd like to have a... Um, looks like a, a fat Christmas tree shape where we have leaves all the way down to the almost to the soil and we'd like to keep a space in between the trees. Like I said, high maintenance. I guess this is one way to justify having your Christmas tree up year round. From the sound of what Dr. Bender said, this seems really challenging to get avocados to grow in such a small space. He says the crop does not want to grow like that. But despite his concerns, Dr. Bender's study was a success. During a four-year period between 2015 and 2018, the high-density orchard averaged 16,000 pounds per acre, compared to the average 6,000 pounds per acre for conventional planting. Now, this method does take more labor to prune the trees, so it's not perfect, but certainly farmers may find the lower land and water demand very appealing. No need for illegal logging, a much cheaper water bill, and most importantly, an increased likelihood of a visit from Santa. Another possible tool on the economic side is certifications. If consumers are aware that a certain product is not associated with illegal logging or cartel activity or what have you, they may be willing to spend more on it. Don't tell the cartels that, though. The last thing we need are cartel criminals walking down the Whole Foods aisles saying, That's a nice avocado you got in your cart there. It would be a shame if I touched it with my hand. Certainly, there are some foods that have largely proven that theory about certifications to be true. Avocado certifications haven't taken off the way some other foods have, but if consumers can access that information about where their avocados came from, it may incentivize the avocado industry to change growing practices and earn certifications in order to sell more produce. 
As of now, only four farms and one supplier hold a Rainforest Alliance certificate in Mexico, so there is certainly room for growth here. Check out episode 24 on organic and fair trade certifications if you want to hear some of the pros and cons to this idea. Obviously, it's always overwhelming to hear one of your favorite foods is riddled with crime, deforestation, and climate vulnerabilities. But that doesn't mean we should give up on avocados. In fact, quite the opposite. People got into this crop because they wanted to create a better future for themselves and their families, and if we stop buying them, we take away all that hard work. So we can absolutely work to fix these issues and make the industry better. If we do that, we can see less crime, more climate resilience, the protection of our beloved monarch butterflies, and ensure that from now until the end of time, every kiss can begin with polyunsaturated fat. Have you ever watched a dog play catch and thought, hey, that looks pretty fun? Then tennis balls are for you. With their soft, velvety texture, small size, and lightweight, tennis balls are the perfect objects for dogs to put in their mouths. But suddenly, when I do it, it's not okay. These dogs go frolicking around the park carrying tennis balls, and people go, aw, cute. But when I do it, it's disturbing and scares the children and the adults. Fine, leave the tennis balls for the dogs then. But just so you know, between you and me, they're still great for humans. Tennis balls, the forbidden fruit. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Roman Gruter, Research Associate at the Zurich University of Applied Sciences Geography of Food Research Group. Dr. Gruter, welcome to the show. Hello. Nice to, to meet you today. So earlier this year, you published a paper titled Expected Global Suitability of Coffee, Cashew, and Avocado Due to Climate Change. Could you tell us a bit about this study and what you found? Yes, of course. We did a, a global climate change impact study for three important global cash crops, coffee, cashew, and avocado. So we studied what the climate change, uh, what, what effects climate change will have on the, the cultivation suitability of these three crops. And we combined um, climate data and soil data to really assess uh, suitability for growing those crops globally. And what we found in our study is really that there are expected shifts in suitable growing regions due to climate change for all three crops. And there is both expansions and contractions um, possible in different regions. But what we could also say is that um, negative climate change impacts on these three crops have to be expected in some of the main producing countries for coffee um, most severely, but also for cashew and avocado. Yeah, there is negative changes expected in some of these countries. 
And yeah, this actually means that climate change adaptation measures will be important and required in all these production systems. Why did you decide to combine these three crops together for one paper? Yeah, there's different reasons for this combination that maybe is, seems a bit awkward at first, but all of these crops are high value cash crops of global importance. And all of them are grown at least partly also by smallholder farmers whose livelihoods really depend on growing these crops because it's their main source of income. And finally, we also decided to combine coffee, which is a, a more investigated crop where modelers globally have already investigated a lot. Um, combine this with cashew and avocado, where we have really less information about how climate change affects their suitability. Yeah, and like you said just there, Cashews and avocados, you noted early in the paper that they had no global assessment of current and future climate suitability, which kind of was surprising to me. Do you have any sense of why this wouldn't have been researched in the global sense before? Maybe no one else had the idea to do this before, so this could be one reason. I think there is like global hotspots for all of these crops where the, the major quantities are produced. And even for cashew and avocado, there are studies for specific growing regions available. And also they, they use, of course, different data sets as compared to a global study. And in some cases, you might have better information if you go for a more local or regional assessment. But um, nevertheless, we try to, to give a, a global picture of how climate change affects these changes. And we also try to really translate climate information into um, the, the, the direct impacts climate change will have on agriculture. So looking at avocados, it seems like there's kind of a mixed bag about future climate suitability. On the one hand, their range could expand to some new areas. On the other hand, changes in precipitation and extreme weather could lead to some negative outcomes. So having done this research, was there an overarching feeling of avocados are in trouble or is it truly more of a mixed bag? Yeah, I would say this really more of a mixed bag. And Maybe I have to specify here that what we investigated was really based on the, the gradual climate change that we expect. And we did not take into account like the, the extreme events and climate variability, which is actually a, a very important factor. Yeah, we could really show in our study that even in some of the, the major producing countries, there is negative effects and there is climate adaptation necessary in the future. So I think it is really relevant in, in these areas. But when we look at different places, there is opportunity for maybe expanding production. And overall, I would say it is really, depending on the region, it's quite a different picture. Given how important precipitation specifically is for avocados, I found it noteworthy that 
The plant grows primarily in regions of the world that either have dry seasons or are in prolonged periods of drought. And climate change, of course, threatens to exacerbate all of this. So how do you expect avocados to fare in the future on the water side? Do these regions have the water resources to continue cultivating the plant? Yeah, it is a, a very relevant point for avocado, especially because, as you mentioned, the water footprint is quite high. And I think it is very relevant also to look at where avocado is grown. And in fact, as you mentioned already, it is today grown in regions where water is already scarce. For example, in California or even in the, the main producing areas in Mexico, avocado is irrigated. In our study, however, we, we based our model on rainfeds agriculture. So we did not take into consideration irrigation. The reason for this is that we wanted to show like the potential for locally adapted production. This, however, resulted in a situation that we, we identified regions as not being suitable for production of avocado, where actually avocado is grown today just to show that, yeah, maybe there is a problem if water is already scarce in these regions. But it also means if there's available water resources, of course, we can grow avocados with irrigation if there's no trade-off with uh, eco ecology or fre freshwater use for other purposes. Yeah, I think that last point is very important because certainly in a lot of these regions, uh, irrigation could be considered an adaptation measure, but you have to compare that to other uses of the water, be it municipal, be it other crops, um, industrial, etc. So I think what was kind of noteworthy with avocados going off that point is, even though there are some hotspots in the world, there are, I guess you could say, multiple countries and multiple continents that grow the crop, uh, certainly different from some uh, like vanilla or something like that. Do you think maybe those percentages of how many avocados each country produces might shift a little bit because of these different factors? Yes, I'm quite convinced that this these shares will shift in the future because really the pressure in some of these areas is getting too high and because water is just not available for all these purposes anymore. And yeah, I'm quite convinced that there will be shifts because of this region, because of this reason. And what is also worth mentioning maybe is also that there's other adaptation measures in the in the area of water management so there's also potential for rainwater harvesting or collection and storage so it can be used in during periods of maybe drier conditions so there's i think there's still a lot of potential in climate adaptation options even in the, the water management sector Avocados are also known to have a larger carbon footprint than a lot of other fruits, which is another interesting layer to this. 
Do you feel like your research fits into that conversation at all? Can the climate impact and the climate vulnerability maybe simultaneously be addressed as we move forward? Yeah, it's, it's another interesting aspect of, of the whole story. We have not really studied this aspect in particular, but of course, I think we can uh, discuss it here because I think also avocado production, even if it's um, like climate intensive, so has a high carbon footprint, I think avocados also have different roles. So, so it's not just uh, a crop that contributes to calories, but it's also a good source of vitamins and micronutrients. And when comparing different crops, I, I think we have to consider all of these different aspects. So we cannot just talk about calories. We, we have to really look at it in a, in a holistic manner. But in terms of avocados, I also think that it is maybe more of a luxury product that we should not really consume on a, on a daily basis, let's say. So there's always a question of how much we eat if in the, the, the production areas, if there was a land use change. So, so then the impact on, on the climate is huge. Um, maybe if it's in a region where traditionally this crop has been grown in a more diversified agricultural system, I'm also convinced that the, the carbon footprint will be probably lower. When you say it's more of a luxury product, how does that affect perhaps future planning or the future outlook in your mind? Because I find that a really interesting point. Of course, it is a very important crop, like cash crop for, for these producers, be it small producers or big farms. And I think crop diversification or even income diversification generally in agriculture is, is a very important climate adaptation strategy. But getting away from a cash crop and diversify with something that might be less economic or economically viable, it is very difficult. So I think there should also be the agriculture policies that support um, such kind of strategies. Seeing as you were able to answer a somewhat unanswered question about avocados through this paper, what would you say are some of the next questions to explore about avocados and climate change? Yeah, I think it's really important to talk about or investigate more um, also the, the trade-offs that we have already talked about before. So let's say production environmental trade-offs, also farmers' livelihoods. I think we should go more in-depth about these details and go for probably more regional or even local case studies to try to combine what we have found, the, the long-term effects of climate change, combine it maybe with experiences on the ground, also combine it with um, breeding efforts, testing different cultivars, diversification. So I would really go for actually climate adaptation in a, in a bottom-up approach involving lots of different stakeholders and exchanging knowledge so to, to make the, the agroecosystems really more resilient for the future. 
For all three crops, you spent some time discussing the importance of climate adaptation in the paper. We've discussed that a little bit today. Are there any climate adaptations that particularly intrigue or excite you? Yeah, as I just mentioned, I think it's very important to to get all the relevant stakeholders on board when going for climate adaptation. So it should not be purely a, a policy approach, top-down approach, but it can also not be expected from farmers themselves to cope with all of these difficulties with the complex issues around climate change. So I think really this participatory climate adaptation is something that I find really important and it is already explored around the globe. So this is one aspect and maybe more technical aspects. I think also in in terms of soil management, there is a huge potential um, in climate adaptation because there it is not only adaptation, it is also combined with climate mitigation. So we can sequester carbon in soils and at the same time adapt to changing conditions, improve water, nutrient cycles, and even improve biodiversity on farms. So I think soils are generally also a very interesting focus for for different um, benefits. If you were giving advice either to farmers or to policymakers looking to support agriculture, uh, based on this research, what would you tell them? Yeah, it's uh, some aspects that we have already also covered a little bit before in our talk. So I have three keywords in mind I I would choose to to let farmers or even policymakers know. And it is experiment. So I would ask farmers and farmer cooperatives really to experiment with different cultivation practices, different cultivars, different adaptation measures, just try out different things. I think that makes the, the community, the farming community and the agroecosystem more resilient. Then secondly, I would go for diversification in crops, but also in, in income, in agriculture. And last, I, I would also encourage all these stakeholders to exchange more, exchange knowledge and maybe have groups farmer cooperatives or even mixed groups with breeders to exchange together on the the most pressing issues regarding their production. Uh, Dr. Gruder, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you too. This wraps up episode 99 of The Sweaty Penguin. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and more. Clips today came from Avocados from Mexico, Bon Appetit, MSNBC, Vice News, and Gary Bender. 
Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownie Central. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET Group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.